High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our new series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. After World War II, Hedda and Luella would face competition from a number of directions. Last week, we talked about the Hollywood Reporter columnist Mike Connolly. Today, we're going to talk about a woman who saw herself as the only real challenger to the two gossip queens, so much so that she referred to Hedda and Luella and herself as a threesome, which she dubbed the unholy trio. This third spoke of the triangle was Sheila Graham. And today, we'll discuss how she, a famous self-made woman in more ways than one, who built much of her own legend around having been F. Scott Fitzgerald's final lover, wedged herself into the gossip wars. 
We'll also talk about how the original Gossip Queen responded to changing times, changing sexual mores, and her changing status in an increasingly crowded and competitive field. Join us, won't you, for part seven of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Sheila Graham would liken writing a Hollywood gossip column to both playing God and performing witchcraft. In her early 30s, when she first became a columnist, she had already lived a colorful life, to say the least. Sheila Graham, born Lily Sheel in England. She renamed herself Sheila Graham, like many people did in those days, was a longtime gossip columnist. This is Rachel Syme. She is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and you might remember her from our special series, Make Me Over. She did the episode on Esther Williams. Rachel is a longtime devoted reader of Sheila Graham's columns and autobiographies. She wrote for the North American Newspaper Alliance, also known as NANA, which was a syndicate that was run in several local papers. I think at the height, she had over 60 papers running her column. She came to Hollywood in the 1930s after being a reporter in New York City and started a column called Hollywood Today and then wrote it off and on for the next 40 years. And the thing about Sheila is like, she's defined by her pragmatism, even though, yes, she changes her name and she goes to Hollywood and she lives this very glamorous existence and has this wonderful affair with Scott Fitzgerald. It's like she was born very, very poor in England, Jewish in East London, absolutely brought herself up by her bootstraps. I mean, was a fighter, scrapper, showgirl, came from nothing, lived in an orphanage for a while because her mother didn't have the money to take care of her. You know, that defines her life. That story is in every book she ever wrote. And so everything in her life is about pragmatically, like, paying the bills, making sure her children have an education, you know? And I think she saw Hollywood truly as a job. In 1941, Graham was still reeling from Fitzgerald's death and missing England. With the war on in full force in her homeland, she felt guilty for not being there and couldn't stand to spend another moment in Hollywood. So she convinced her syndicate to hire her as a war correspondent. She spent the war going back and forth between Hollywood, New York, and the UK. She interviewed Winston Churchill and married an airplane manufacturer named Trevor Westbrook. Graham would give birth to two children over the next few years, both of whom would grow up believing Trevor Westbrook was their father and both of whom would write books after their mother's death, exploring their mother's life and sorting out new-to-them truths from the fictions they had grown up believing. Sheila's daughter Wendy's book is devoted to her discovery that her real father was a British philosopher named A.J. Eyre. Sheila's son, Robert, mentions in one of his books that Westbrook divorced Sheila because he believed that Robert's real father was actor Robert Taylor. In her own books, Sheila bent over backwards to invent chronologies 
that would make Westbrook's paternity of both her children plausible. You might think an affair with a gorgeous leading man who happened to be married to superstar Barbara Stanwyck would have made for the kind of juicy story that would be right at home in at least one of the memoirs of a gossip columnist who published many of them. But Sheila Graham wasn't that kind of gossip columnist. She understood that her job was not to reveal what was going on behind the scenes, but to prop up a facade that no one would be able to see through. She extended that work to constructing and maintaining a perfect facade in front of her own true self. Much like Luella Parsons before her, she was fully engaged in mythologizing her own biography. Here's Rachel Syme. A lot about Sheila's life was smoke and mirrors, so it's hard for us to really know when people are shocked about how much spin and obfuscation is involved in these early Hollywood gossip columns. I think, like, how could you be so shocked that an industry that is sort of, its bedrock is false fronts, right? Everything about it is just a backlot scene, nothing behind it. So how how would you be surprised that it doesn't go deeper than that? You know, they're never going to show you what's going on backstage. It's just not part of the ethos of Hollywood. So if it's coming out of Hollywood and that whole machinery, you're not going to get the the exact true story, or you're definitely going to get the part of the story that they want you to see. Graham was never one to air dirty laundry. Her approach to writing gossip took a page from the playbook of Sidney Skolsky, who was not coincidentally Graham's closest confidant amongst her fellow columnists. Although, as Graham wrote, No one has a closest friend in Hollywood. She liked to reveal information about the inner workings of Hollywood that left readers feeling like they had been let in on behind-the-scenes secrets, such as the tidbit that Lauren Bacall's singing voice in To Have and Have Not had been dubbed by what Graham referred to as a boy, while assiduously protecting the images of the stars by never writing what she knew about their sex lives. This only made Sheila more employable. She would become a significant rival to Hedda and Luella in the 1950s, at a time when those two grand dames were scrambling to remain relevant amidst the emergence of new sexual double standards. In the 1950s, there was massive pressure for people of all genders and sexual identities to buy into the fantasy of the nuclear family and all the suburban conformity and consumerism that went with it. Graham's Los Angeles paper, The Hollywood Citizen News, was so averse to material that flew in the face of the sanctity of marriage that as late as 1952, they refused to allow her to run the scoop that Clark Gable was getting a divorce. But it was Graham's own sense of propriety that led her to refrain from publishing the biggest infidelity scoop of a decade that was defined in large part by the mixed messages sent to men and women about sexuality, which we'll get to later in this episode. But suffice to say, while the parallel narratives about stars needed to toe the cultural lines set by the decade's obsession with family values, Hollywood talked out of both sides of its mouth. 
As part of their desperation to lure back audiences that were increasingly avoiding the movies in favor of television, the film industry fell back on selling sex to an extent that they hadn't since the pre-code era. And just like in the 1930s, the key unit of sale for the film industry in the 1950s was the bombshell. There was no one better primed to understand how Hollywood history repeats than Luella Parsons. The only question was, could she use her wealth of experience to pull her own career out of a downward spiral? I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of the 1940s, Luella Parsons had been writing a gossip column for 35 years. She was nearly 60. No one would have blamed her for slowing down. But Luella wasn't ready to retire. And even if she had been, she wouldn't have wanted to go out on a down note. From her instrumental role in bullying Orson Welles and burying Citizen Kane, to her ongoing humiliation at the hands of Time magazine, her reputation had been sliding downhill for a decade. She had kept plugging away at her column, and her radio show got decent ratings. But she definitely wasn't cool. A comedian named Arthur Blake started working an unflattering impression of Luella into his nightclub act. She knew he wasn't the only one making fun of her. She needed to get her mojo back. Parsons got her chance via an old friend. Luella first met Rita Hayworth in 1935, when she was a dancer at Mexican nightclubs billed under her birth name, Margarita Cancino. Luella met her again a few years later, by which time Margarita had been renamed Rita and made over into a red-headed bombshell. The rebranding of Miss Cancino had been overseen by the young woman's husband, Ed Judson, who had shaped his 22-year-old wife to better match Columbia studio chief Harry Cohn's desires. In their first formal interview, young Rita confided in matronly Luella, telling her that the whole process had made her feel, quote, hollow inside, as if I were a puppet. Rita and Luella's friendship managed to survive Hayworth's subsequent marriage to and divorce from Orson Welles, as well as her rise to fame as a wartime pinup and bombshell femme fatale of films like Gilda. In the summer of 1948, Rita fell in love with Pakistani prince Ali Khan, the son of the leader of the Shia Muslims. 
Hayworth gave Luella exclusive access to the wedding. No other reporter was invited or allowed to get anywhere near the festivities, to be centered in Cannes on the French Riviera. Though she would include coverage of the wedding on her radio show, Parsons wasn't going to be able to do the whole show live from Europe, so she needed fill-ins. By now, Sheila Graham had her own successful radio show, which aired half an hour after Luella's. Sheila would listen to Luella's show, and when she felt Parsons got something wrong, Graham would correct the record during her own time slot. Luella must not have been listening on those nights, but she did tune in to Graham's show while recovering from her hernia surgery. After she was back on her feet, Luella approached the relative newcomer to the space to congratulate her, telling Sheila that her radio show was, quote, very good. Parsons thought Graham's show was so good that, according to Graham, she copied the format, leaving Sheila scrambling to retool her own show. Still, Sheila took Luella's praise at face value. So when Graham heard Parsons was leaving town for the summer, Sheila thought maybe she had a chance at temporarily filling her shoes. She took Luella out to lunch and pitched herself, which backfired. It made Parsons see Graham as legitimate competition. Plus, Luella didn't need a substitute. She had cheap labor close at hand. Harriet Parsons took over her mom's radio show that summer. With that settled, in the summer of 1949, Luella decamped for Europe. The mayor of Cannes, a communist, had bullied Hayworth and Kahn into turning their wedding into a community event by holding it at the Cannes City Hall. This posed a problem for Luella, who needed a private phone line so that she could call the newspaper desk and dictate her report from the wedding in time for her deadline. As Luella recalled, He was the first admitted communist I had ever talked with, but I found that he was not averse to capitalistic ideas. In other words, she bribed the mayor into letting her use his phone. Jealous at her rival's exclusive access to the celebrity wedding of the decade, Hedda Hopper predicted in her column that Parsons would not get within a mile of the wedding. But Hopper's prediction looked all the more sour when Luella's coverage became an international sensation, because it was the only eyewitness coverage of the wedding in print, and every publication that wanted the story was duty-bound to credit Parsons by name. Her reports were such a sensation that Hearst commissioned Luella to crank out a series of biographical articles on the bride overnight, which she did, only for Hearst to cancel the series after Ali Khan punched out three Hearst photographers who tried to follow the newlyweds as they left for their honeymoon. Hearst himself wrote a racist editorial blasting the quote-unquote spoiled oriental prince. It's something of a surprise that it took Khan committing an act of violence for someone like Hearst to turn on him. In many ways, the marriage and the romance that preceded it defied what was considered culturally appropriate 
in the late 1940s. For one thing, both Hayworth and Kahn were married to other people when they began seeing one another. But the bigger issue was one of ethnicity. Ali Khan was a handsome prince when it was convenient for Luella to position him as such. But he was also a quote-unquote oriental scoundrel when Hearst wanted him to be. Meanwhile, Hayworth was a half-Spanish sex goddess who had signed her first studio contract under the name Rita Cancino and whose star persona as Rita Hayworth was a kind of exaggerated drag of white beauty performed by a woman who had been told at the beginning of her career that she must submit to a painful, traumatic transformation in order to delete all visual signifiers of her Hispanic heritage, if she wanted to work in Hollywood. This was an ongoing process, as is evidenced by a 1948 column in which Hedda Hopper assured her readers, There are two Rita Hayworths. The girl you meet at her home is a complete switch from the sexy silk and satin Latin lady. In other words, there was an impetus to reassure moviegoers that Rita wasn't really Latin. Not when it counted, when she was at home. This both reinforced the idea that she was a good enough actress to play a Latin lady, and that it was safe to admire her because when she wasn't working, she wasn't Latin at all. Now, this living, breathing example of contested ethnic identity was marrying a Muslim and even intimating that she might convert to his religion. If Hedda Hopper had been allowed to lead the narrative of Rita Hayworth's marriage to Ali Khan, it might have looked like a major scandal, one which defied both Christian propriety and Hollywood's insistence on celebrating fantasies of racial purity. After all, this was all happening at a time when depiction of mixed-race romance was forbidden by the production code which governed the content of American movies. But because Luella Parsons owned this story, and because Luella was both friendly with Hayworth and kind of an old-fashioned cheeseball, this potentially incendiary story was largely defanged of scandal and was received as a storybook romance. And as a happy ending, Hayworth had announced that she would retire from film after the wedding, which allowed the industry to celebrate her happiness because she was no longer their liability. Her off-screen behavior would have no impact on anyone in Hollywood's bottom line. That Luella would play such a leading role in celebrating and sanitizing the interfaith marriage of two divorced people, which would produce a child of mixed ethnicity, who was controversially born on a date which indicated to all that Rita had been pregnant on her wedding day, might have suggested that Parsons was becoming more progressive in her old age. To cast Rita Hayworth as Cinderella in her marriage to Prince Ali Khan was, in 1949, 
a statement equivalent to saying, love is love today. But within a year, another actress's sex life would push Luella in the opposite direction, giving her an opportunity to reaffirm her essentially Puritan values, while at the same time, paradoxically, blowing past an invisible line of decency, which no gossip columnist had ever crossed in Hollywood history. In a very early episode of this podcast, we talked about actress Isabella Rossellini as an unconventional beauty influencer of the 1990s. In that episode, we also talked about Rossellini's mother, Ingrid Bergman, who is considered to be Hollywood's first natural beauty. The Swedish Bergman refused to submit to the standard makeover upon her arrival in Hollywood which gave producer David O. Selznick the bright idea to promote his new foreign import as pure and untouched. Many of Bergman's early Hollywood films played into that image. She was the original unsuspecting gaslighted woman in Gaslight. In Bells of St. Mary, she was a nun. She even managed to maintain that persona of inherent goodness while playing World War II's most glamorous adulteress in Casablanca. Bergman had arrived in Hollywood with a husband, Peter Lindstrom. By 1939, when she became a star with her first American film, Intermezzo, Bergman was the mother of one-year-old daughter, Pia. Bergman had never had a good relationship with the Hollywood gossip columnists. Much like Greta Garbo before her, she couldn't muster up the reverence that they demanded. Their power shocked me, Bergman read in her autobiography. I thought it very wrong that the film industry had allowed them to build up to such an extent that they could ruin people's careers and lives. She also hated the artificial bonds they expected her to form with them. When she met Parsons, the gossip columnist said, We have so much in common, you and I. Bergman, surprised, asked what they had in common. Luella answered, We're both married to a doctor. How do you keep your doctor? Luella, never particularly sensitive to how the stars really felt about her, did not pick up on Bergman's distaste. In 1948, Parsons described Bergman as, quote, a credit to the industry, and insisted, If we had more women like Ingrid Bergman, we'd have fewer divorces in Hollywood or in any other town. It was well known, and even publicized by Luella, that Ingrid and her husband lived somewhat separate lives, thanks to their separate, demanding careers. Peter was a neurosurgeon who often operated at night, while Ingrid was getting her beauty sleep so she could shoot all day. It was not publicly known that Peter was overbearing and verbally abusive. By the time Luella held her up as a paragon of Hollywood virtue, Bergman had had a few discreet affairs, the most serious of which 
was with photographer Robert Coppa. In the late 1980s, when Gregory Peck admitted to having had a dalliance with Bergman on the set of Spellbound in 1945, he described having had a fiery kind of love for her. Her director on Joan of Arc, Victor Fleming, had fallen hopelessly in love with Ingrid. And then, shortly after finishing the film, he died of a heart attack. The intensity of the experience making that film, and her acknowledgement that, despite her passion for the material and Fleming's passion for her, Joan of Arc turned out to be a creative failure, led Bergman to seek something else, outside of Hollywood. She sought out Roberto Rossellini, who by then had made the neorealist classics Germany Year Zero and Rome Open City. In 1949, Rossellini came to Los Angeles and moved into Ingrid's marital home while he and the actress developed a film together. In the spring of 1950, Rossellini returned to Italy and Bergman soon followed. She announced that her plan was to shoot the film Stromboli on the island of the same name with Rossellini. And then afterwards, she'd meet up with her husband in either Sweden or the US. The point of this statement was to quiet rumors, already popping up in the gossip columns, that her marriage was heading for divorce. In her column, Luella tried to finesse this just so, simultaneously promising that there would be no divorce, while also indulging in romance novel-worthy prose about Bergman's infatuation with her director. I really and sincerely believe that Ingrid had no idea she was getting so involved. She really fell madly in love with the Italian director, and like all romantic Italians, he was everything Dr. Lindstrom was not. If all this had not hit the newspapers, Ingrid would probably have gotten Rossellini out of her system. Movie actresses know that when they choose to become actresses, they are in the limelight. And this really should be a lesson to other Hollywood actresses who play with fire. The feeling in Hollywood about Ingrid Bergman is one of sadness. This last line was typical of Luella Parsons in Enforcer Mode. Her commentary could be read as being sympathetic to a woman who got swept up in an exotic romance, complete with an almost mea culpa in which Parsons blames the newspapers, and thus herself, for changing the course of Bergman's romantic destiny. But the bottom line was that other actresses needed to take this as an example of what not to do, because the industry did not approve. And that was what mattered. This is something to keep in mind as Luella's involvement in the Ingrid Bergman scandal escalates. The gossip columnist would proceed to cross a line she had never crossed before. But I'm not sure that's what she set out to do. I think she was trying to do what she had done for 35 years, literally since 1915. She was trying to protect the institution of Hollywood, to preserve the status quo 
by shaming a single bad actor. I think because she was so focused on that goal, and because she was, as I'm sure you've noticed, not at all forward-thinking and not able to imagine a Hollywood that was radically different from the Hollywood of the classical studio system, she didn't realize that, in this case, shaming one bad apple would have a chain reaction that would ultimately change stardom, movie marketing, movie censorship, and the entire gossip industry. Ingrid Bergman probably became pregnant in April 1950, and almost surely knew she was pregnant by June, when Hedda Hopper visited her in Rome and point-blank asked the question. The actress responded, Oh my goodness, Hedda, do I look it? Hedda then wrote in her column that Bergman was not going to have a baby with Roberto Rossellini. Sometime that summer, in an effort to end the speculation, Bergman announced that she would divorce her husband and retire from films, again taking a page from the playbook that said that if an actress who was acting outside of the norms of acceptable behavior said that she was going to retire, then she was also saying she would no longer be Hollywood's problem. Bergman and her team hoped that she could have her baby in Italy, quietly, and not have the birth impact the release of her first creative collaboration with Rossellini, Stromboli. If you've read my book, Seduction, you know what happened next. In December 1950, Bergman's publicist Joseph Steele met with Howard Hughes, who financed Stromboli and planned to release it through his RKO Pictures. Steele begged Hughes for mercy and discretion. The publicist admitted that Bergman was pregnant and said that she was due in March. She was actually due earlier, but Steele was hoping to fudge the public timeline. He asked Hughes if he could rush Stromboli into release so that the movie could open before news broke that its actress had become impregnated by the director, before either had divorced their spouses. This might seem like not such a big deal today, when divorce itself is for many a legal formality. But back in 1950, to have a quote-unquote illegitimate child was a scandal, particularly when you were a member of a film industry that was still beholden to a censorship code largely built to appease Catholics. Hughes told Steele he'd keep the matter confidential. And then Hughes drove to the station where Luella recorded her Sunday night radio show, gave her the pregnancy scoop, and asked her to run it in her newspaper column the following morning. She did as she was told. Luella Parsons' story headlined, Ingrid Bergman Expecting Baby, soon spread like wildfire, appearing in over 1,000 newspapers around the world. Luella had never published anything like this before. She had always kept stories quiet that she thought could impact the reputation of the film industry amongst the general public. 
and more importantly, amongst politicians who sought to curry favor with conservative voters by insisting on regulation of the movies. From the birth of a nation on, it had always been her endgame to protect the right of the movies to exist as a business and for the studios to self-police the content of the products they released. Early on, she understood that in order to keep the government out of the movie business, she had a role to play in helping the film companies police their talent. Surely she justified running the Bergman story because it was unlike any scandal of the past. Bergman had violated numerous written and unwritten rules by abandoning her husband and daughter, abandoning Hollywood movies, and getting impregnated by a foreigner at a time when McCarthyism and The Blacklist were still broadcasting the unambiguous message that every human being who is not 100% American probably wanted to destroy America. And she was doing the bidding of a man who ran a studio. But Howard Hughes wasn't like any other man who ran any other studio. And he was using Luella. On some level, the aviator-turned-movie mogul thought like a 13-year-old boy. And for him, the pregnancy was great news because it was confirmation that sex had happened. If he could get that confirmation into one of the major, if not the most major, gossip columns, then he could use that gossip to market the movie Stromboli as a kind of documentary about the sex that had led to the pregnancy. Hughes may have been infantile, but he was also more willing than any of his competitors in the movie business to innovate when it came to publicity, particularly shameless publicity. A star's bad behavior off-screen had always been considered to be a detriment to movie marketing, until Hughes had realized, just two years earlier, that Robert Mitchum's marijuana arrest had made audiences more excited to see him in the RKO Western melodrama, Rachel and the Stranger. That scandal had fallen in Hughes's lap. If he was going to break this scandal himself, Hughes needed a gossip columnist partner who was willing and also desperate. There's a reason it was Luella he went to with Steele's scoop. He understood that in an increasingly competitive field, she was desperate to own a big story that would prove she was still the first lady of Hollywood. Hughes also understood that Luella's signature blend of florid romanticism and school marm scolding would allow her to present Ingrid Bergman's secret in a way that didn't reflect badly on Luella for hanging the dirty laundry and didn't reveal Hughes's role as the laundry delivery guy. It would only reflect badly on Bergman and on other gossip columnists. Hedda Hopper admitted to feeling foolish when Luella's story broke, since she had denied the pregnancy in her own column. I spent the day of the announcement rubbing egg off my face because six months before, I'd interviewed Bergman at the scene of the crime. 
It was especially painful for Hedda because swallowing a celebrity's lie, hook, line, and sinker was something Luella would usually do. But maybe that was fitting, because running a scoop about a star's personal life, despite the fact that she knew it would hurt that star personally and professionally, was something Hedda Hopper would usually do. It would not have usually been part of Luella's playbook at all. She could sort of find cover in the fact that Hughes, the head of the studio, had fed her the item, so in that sense, she was doing what she had always done. But everyone felt that, at the end of the day, this story was different. In fact, there were at least a couple of other Hollywood gossip columnists who later claimed to have had solid information on the pregnancy before Luella who declined to run it because they thought it so clearly would have crossed a line. Raddy Harris, a writer for The Hollywood Reporter, claimed that Hughes had given her the scoop months earlier, but her quote-unquote code of ethics stopped her from publishing the exclusive. As Harris explained, quote, I would rather sleep well than eat well. Sheila Graham also said she had confirmed the pregnancy with Joseph Steele before Luella's story broke, but that she never even thought about running her own story. According to Graham, that same Sunday that Steele met with Hughes, he called Sheila and asked her not to break the news on her radio show. And Graham responded, For heaven's sake, I wouldn't dream of using an item like that. For Sheila Graham, revealing a movie star's adulterous pregnancy would have been absolutely beyond the pale. But with one exclusive, Luella Parsons had changed the rules. No one was more shocked than Joseph Steele, who called Parsons as soon as he saw her headline to say, What the hell? Luella responded, I just feel terrible about it. Just awful. But honey, you understand I couldn't do anything else. It's a big story. I just had to do it. A testament to the unholy alliances between press agents and gossip columns was that later that day, exhausted from being hounded by other reporters ever since Luella's story broke, Steele showed up at Parson's house looking for refuge. He took a nap there, and when he woke up, Luella cooked him eggs. After that, rumors spread that Luella had kidnapped Steele in order to prevent him from talking to any other journalists so that her exclusive would be the only source of Bergman news for at least 24 hours. Unable to add to the story... Hedda Hopper's camp at first tried to deny it. To help their columnist save face, the Los Angeles Times published an inaccurate item protesting that Luella's scoop was wrong, then insisting that, even if it was true, the LA Times was above trafficking in such salacious material. Soon Hedda transitioned to using Bergman as a stalking horse in her column often pairing her with another star whose sex life she had been late on, Rita Hayworth, as examples of what she called 
Hollywood's current apostles of degradation. Bergman's transgression thus allowed both Luella and Hedda to prop themselves up as arbiters of morality and to stem the tide of an evolution in attitudes about female sexuality, which also served the columnists more than it served their subjects. If culture changed to the point where women could do things like select and change lovers freely, Parsons and Hopper could hardly make a living stirring up outrage about such behavior. It thus served their interests to promote outdated ideas about sex and gender roles. One sterling example, when Alfred Kinsey published his report on human female sexuality in 1953, Hopper sowed skepticism about its findings, suggesting Kinsey's data was either fiction or culled only from sexual freaks of nature. Because, as she put it, No decent woman would have agreed to answer the questionnaire. We'll see Hopper and Parsons flailing to enforce old standards even more clearly in our next episode, when we talk about how the censorship code instituted in the 1930s began to break down in the 1950s. As we've noted multiple times on this show, the point of the code, and of much of Luella Parsons' column dating back to long before the code was enforced in 1934, was to forestall government intervention into the film industry. It worked, more or less, for a long time. But the HUAC hearings beginning in 1947 reignited the problem of the existential threat posed to Hollywood by Washington. Coming in the middle of anti-communist panic, Ingrid Bergman's pregnancy just became another hook on which certain politicians could hang an argument that the film industry was promoting godlessness. In March 1950, two years after Bergman had played Joan of Arc, she was denounced on the floor of Congress as, quote, a powerful influence for evil. Colorado Congressman Edwin Johnson attempted to link Bergman's sex life to the blacklist by calling Rossellini a fascist and suggesting that Congress formally oppose the, quote, exhibition in the United States of motion pictures produced or directed by fascists, Nazis, or communists. This motion went nowhere, but it ensured that Bergman would be persona non grata in Hollywood for the immediate future. She would stay in Europe and make a total of five films in collaboration with Rossellini and give birth to two more of his children, twins, including Isabella Rossellini. She wouldn't appear in a Hollywood film until late 1956, when she starred in Anastasia and won a second Oscar. By then, so much had changed in Hollywood and in the culture that her previous transgressions no longer seemed to matter. For Luella, a brief victory lap followed the scoop. Her radio ratings improved, and soon her show was gaining on that of her biggest national rival, Walter Winchell. 
But by the time Bergman had her baby in February 1951, it was becoming clear that Luella's husband, Harry, was dying. To cope, Luella began drinking more heavily. They had always drank together, jovially, recreationally. But as he got sicker, she had started conspicuously drinking while she worked. Harry passed away in June 1951. Two months later, Hearst died. The two most important, supportive men in Luella's life were gone. The couple of generations of stars that she had seen arrive, the bigs of the silence such as Mary Pickford and Marion Davies, and the first generation of sound film performers such as Joan Crawford and Clark Gable, were now fading away or had already burned out. Hollywood as a whole was in the midst of cataclysmic changes, which would ultimately bring all of the major studios to their knees. And Luella was in denial. This wouldn't serve her well over the next few years, as the film industry began to face a number of existential threats. Among them were the rise of television and a gossip revolution spearheaded by Confidential magazine. We'll discuss how Hedda and Luella dealt with these threats next week. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Rachel Syme, who spoke to me about Sheila Graham. Rachel is a writer for The New Yorker, and she's writing a book for Knopf. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, At Home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch, like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, 
that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.